Heavenly Father, we come into this house this morning and we ask that your grace and your mercy and your spirit of wisdom and health and strength be poured out in our midst. Lord, that we might worship you in spirit and truth, that we might be fed with your precious word and that we might nearly glorify you in all that we do in this upcoming week. And we praise and thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart to say. Can you guess what today's topic is? Oh, overflowing joy. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. The word has all but disappeared from our current Christian vocabulary. One reason is because we have confused joy with happiness, which is depending on your happenings, um, and have come to believe it is found in pleasure, security, and prosperity. In doing this, however, we have believed the lie that Satan is constantly telling the world to believe. But James did not say, count it all joy when you fall into your easy chair. No, he said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Joy is not the same as happiness, although they may overlap. Happiness depends on circumstances, happenings. Joy depends on God. Happiness vanishes, excuse me, vanishes when life turns painful. Joy keeps going and may even grow. Joy comes from a living, vital relationship with God. It comes from knowing that this world is only temporary and that someday we will be with God forever. It comes from the fact that, oh, we do not yet see God. We believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Amen. Amen. It comes from a life of submission to the Holy Spirit regardless of our circumstances. And the hope for today, we've all heard it, some of us have surely said, I just want to be happy. How sad that we would content ourselves with happiness when the joy of the Lord is ours for the taking. Choose joy. And with that, let's praise our Lord. Yeah. 
sing that right away. This we is used to day. be able to jump out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus my Lord, He is the mighty King, Master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. He's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages, Today the readings from Psalm 8. This is for the director of music, according to Giddeth, a Psalm of David. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And now please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive our sins. It is not in temptation, but deliver us Testament scripture today, <clears throat> excuse me, comes from the Jos Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. If you'd like to join me now in a responsive reading. Heavenly Father, I am your humble servant come before you today in need of hope. There are times when I feel helpless. There are times when I feel weak. I pray for hope. I need hope for a better future. I need hope for a better life. I need hope for love and kindness. I pray to be filled with your light from head to toe, to bask in your glory, to know that all is right in the world as you have planned and as you want it to be. Help me to walk in your light and live my life in faith and glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, all does belong to you. All comes from you. Yet you entrust 
us. You entrust us with so much, but you do require us to give back. You call on us to help those who don't know you yet or are having a difficult time and need our help. So Lord, we ask that the gifts that we give today can be used for the purposes that you have identified. And may we do so with the same open, loving heart that you have shown us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to rise for the doxology. talk about the letter to Pergamum today in, um, in its Revelation chapter 2 beginning verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon, to you, soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Um, so this is a, a letter to Pergamum, and this, this has, um, it's it very near and dear to our hearts, and I'll explain why. Um, when we first, um, yeah, that's a, that's a kind of an artist's concept of what Pergamum looked like, and in 1997, I took a trip, um, was actually with the head of the Free Church Mission, um, and we went on a tour of the Balkans, Turkey, and Central Asia. It was to the Turkic world. And um, there were, and, you know, it was a good time, but it was a very difficult time for me, and we had been in the Peace Corps uh, in Turkey from 67 to 69. And so this was my first trip back to Turkey. And, um, you know, we'd lived there two years. And this was, uh, it, it was really interesting to be back again. And it, was, it had been 29 years since we'd been in Turkey. So, um, and we had been, I was past Pearl Canyon at the time. And I was in charge of the missions program. And so, I, you know, we've been praying a lot. God, show us what you want us to do in missions. What do you, you know, where do you want us to go? And we, and we had arrived at the idea that we wanted to do a, uh, someplace in, what, in, the, uh, in the unreached people groups. Okay? And there's an unreached people group area of which Turkey that. And so... Um, when I got to Turkey, and I'd been sick prior to that for about a week, I'd been really sick when I, um, I actually, when I got on the plane, I was sick, you know, heading out, and uh, it was a rough trip, and I was in, and when we arrived in Turkey, I stayed with a family because I was, I was still sick at that time, and, um, and God spoke to me. Just, you know, I, not an audible voice or anything like that. But God spoke to me, concentrate on Turkey. Because we had already, um, we knew the language, we, know the, we knew the culture. 
you know, we've, it was very familiar to us. And so God said, concentrate on Turkey. So, okay, so we'll do that. Also interesting, during that trip, um, we had been in the Balkans and finally got to Turkey. And we were staying in a pension in Istanbul. And so I hadn't spoken to my wife for, it had been about a week at that point. And so I called Caroline and, you know, he spent the whole time telling me how the Wildcats had won the NCAA championship. <laughs> so that's the woman I married. <laughs> but, but she felt the same thing. And we felt like, you know, God wants us to concentrate on Turkey. So the following year, 1998, we took three couples with us. And uh, one of the couples from our church and then another one was Ray and Barbara Rash. I don't know if some of you know Ray and Barbara Rash. Anyway, they were at free, what was called First Free Church at that point. And we started out uh, going along the coast. And what, and what we were trying to do is we said, God, we want you to guide us to the place where you want us to concentrate. Because we'd come to the conclusion that what we wanted to do was to adopt an area you know, uh, an area of Turkey. At this point, we knew it was Turkey. Give us an area, give us a place where we need to settle. And so, so as we were traveling along the coast, we had rented a car up in Istanbul. We were traveling along the coast. And when we got to Pergamum, um, Pergamum is a thousand foot above the, the you know, the, the valley floor there. And so we were up on this citadel and we were praying for, the, for the area. And as we were praying, Barbara Rash began to cry and, and just, began, just broke down and started to weep. And we said, well, what's going on? You know, why, why, are, you, why are you weeping now? And, she's, and she said these words. She said, um, if we don't tell these people about Jesus, who's going to? And, and, that, and we, you know, later on, we kept going, but we you know, stayed there for a while in Pergamum, in, the, in what's called Bergama today. And, um, and, but once we, you know, we got done with the trip and we, we said, okay, we feel that God has spoken to us. We're to adopt that area in, around Pergamum, okay? The present day Bergamum. So in 1999, we made a trip back there and we went down to Marmaris first, and then we, we went up to, Turkey, up to uh, Air, uh, Pergamon. And we hit the ground. We're walking, we're walking through a little town called Dikali, right on the coast. From, it's, the, it's the place close to, the place which is closest to Pergamon is a little town called Dikali. We're walking down the street in, in Dikali, and we see a guy standing in a doorway, and he says, are you Frank Martin? <laughs> and, and we go, what? <laughs> and, uh, and he had, you know, we, we, knew, we knew what we were going to, we were trying to connect with him. He was a friend of a friend. Um, and then his name was Ur, Ur Durk. And Ur, um, okay, next, uh, next slide. Okay, well, okay, let's go back. Go back a couple slides. Okay, there he is. On the left-hand side there, that was Ur. And Ur said, uh, we had a team of, I think there were about uh, 10 of us or something like that. And, and we sat down. Ur said, I'll take you all out to dinner. And he did. And as we sat there having dinner, um, he began to tell us, uh, Caroline and myself, because it was in Turkish, he began to tell me that that year Christ had appeared to him and that, uh, that he had given his life to Christ. So, you know, we were operating on the principle at that point, find the man of peace and stay there. And so uh, we, we said, okay, God is leading us to this area. And so that was, you know, that was why we settled in on that area. And at Ur, worked with a fellow named Erdogan and another. There were three partners in a rug business, and then they had a, or two, two of them in a rug business. The third one was a tour guide, and so we got to know Ur and Ertuğrul, 
Erdogan and Hakan. Erdogan, I'm sorry, not Erdogan. Um, well, that was how we got started with our ministry in Turkey. And, and we said, God has called us to this area. And so Pergamum, the whole thing started up on that citadel in Pergamum. Uh, we probably made at least 30 trips to that region since then. Um, when we started in that region, and we started uh, taking teams in, when we started, there were no known believers in the whole area, that whole northern Aegean. Um, we asked lots of people, are there any Christians in this area? And they said, no, there are no Christians. Nobody knew of anybody who had, who had become a Christian. Now, there are church planters in every single one of the little towns in that whole area. Um, and, um, you know, it's just amazing what God has done. But now there's a current city called Bergama that we talked about. Uh, it's a population of, like, today it's 101,000. Uh, when we first started going back there, it was maybe 50,000, 60,000. Um, and it's, but it's a place of spiritual hardness. Uh, there have been a lot of missionaries in and out of Bergama, and uh, everybody, you know, discouraged at some point and moved on. But the city of Pergamum, let's go back to then the city of Pergamum as it was in the day of Paul. And the city itself, um, there's two names for it. Pergamos is the feminine form. Pergamum is the neuter form of the same name. So it's Pergamum. We could use Pergamos or Pergamum. I usually use Pergamum. It was located 48 miles north of Smyrna. Remember, we talked about Smyrna last time I spoke with you. About 17 miles inland from the Aegean Sea, and on that coast was this little town, Dikali. As far as we know, Paul probably never went to Pergamum. I mean, there's no record of it. Um, but, you know, if you're going to where Paul, you know, Paul was down in Ephesus, and, and he went many times through that region, I could very well have stopped in Pergamum, we don't know. But certainly P Paul doesn't mention Pergamum, and probably it was planted by somebody else, a church there in Pergamum. Pergamum was, the population at that time was actually greater than it is today. It was about 140,000 people. So pretty, pretty good, pretty good sized city. And it was built, as I said, on a hill. Let's see if you can uh, uh, go to the next slide. Uh, you can see this. This is, a, a, again, an artist's conception of what it must have looked like. Um, so, you know, incredible, um, incredible city. And part of the city, okay, next slide. Um, this, is, this, this is up on top. This is the present day ruins of Pergamum. Next slide. Um, and this, this gives you a good idea. It's built on the side of a hill. This is the amphitheater. And it's, they say it's the steepest amphitheater in, you know, anywhere in the, in the Greek world at that time or Roman world. Um, I, I mean, you f literally feel like you're going to fall over if you're standing there. But, uh, you know, people would sit there and down here, this thing doesn't show up very well, but anyway, down um, at the bottom there's, you know, where they would do the plays and that kind of stuff. Uh, but then down, next slide. Okay, this gives an idea looking up into what we just, what we just saw. This is present day. And there's, there's two parts to it. There's the lower city, and then there's the uh, way up on the top there is the citadel or the city of Pergamum itself, okay? Um, it's a, really an incredibly beautiful, you know, must have been incredibly beautiful at the time. And, but Pergamum was not on any of the great roads like Ephesus and Smyrna, but it was the greatest city in Asia. And for a while, it was the capital of, the, of Asia Minor. Okay? That gradually shifted to Ephesus. Uh, it said this, The sumptuousness of the Italic princes had raised Pergamos to the rank of the first city in Asia as regards splendor, and Pliny speaks of it as without a rival in the province. It was a sort of a union of a pagan cathedral city, a university town, and a royal residence embellished during a successive succession of years by kings who had all a passion for expenditure and ample means of gratifying it. 
So it was a beautiful, beautiful place. And I can just imagine, you know, looking down in the valley and looking up and seeing these temples and, and so on, up, up on, you know, a thousand feet above the, uh, the floor of the, of the city. So it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia for about 200 years. And said that Ephesus, he compared to New York, it was a financial center, but Pergamum could be combined, compared to like Washington and Boston, okay? Because it was a university town, very much, uh, very much, um, you know, a lot of learning and so on taking, there, play, taking place there. And it was also a seat, you know, a governmental seat for a while. And in, there were, um, as I mentioned before, there were two, uh, this is, okay, this is the temple to Zeus, which was, which was uh, up on the top of the citadel, and it looked just like that. This is, uh, this is actually was taken uh, by the Germans and taken to Berlin. And there's a, there's a museum in Berlin that's called the Pergamon Museum. And this is the actual, I mean, this is the actual building itself. Um, reconstructed, I mean, not, not a facsimile, but the actual thing itself um, in, um, in, in uh, Berlin. And so down at the bottom, there was the temple of Asclepios, okay? This is really interesting here. And the most famous title for Asclepios was Asclepios Soter, which means Asclepios, the savior. So Pergamum was very much a pagan city. The emblem of Asclepios was the serpent, um, and coins from Pergamum showed Caracula, the Roman emperor from 198 to 217 AD, saluting a serpent twined around a bending sapling. Okay, now this is, this is looking into this healing center, okay? And um, this is the, it, it's a, the first mental hospital, okay? Very interesting. And, and so what they would do is people would come from all over the Roman Empire, come to Pergamum uh, for mental healing. And this shows there was, you, you can't really see it in this picture, but along both sides, there's a huge tunnel that goes from one side of this healing center to the other. And along, the, along both sides of the walkway in a tunnel, there's uh, water running. You know how much, I, I don't know about you, but when I need mental healing and I'm you know, emotionally spent, I get near water. Because we love to hear the sound of water. Well, they, they realize that. And so they had water running through that and you would walk through this tunnel and you could, you could see this. That's not really one of the areas up where, uh, what they would do is they would have priests who would, there were uh, holes the ceiling of this tunnel and they would shout words of encouragement to you as you walk down this tunnel. <laughs> and next slide. Furthermore, you see that's called the Odeon and the Odeon, they, uh, in the mental healing, part of it was they would do plays. And so part of your healing process was um, they, would, they would have plays. I don't know what the plays were all about, but but for mental healing, emotional healing, they would have plays. So very interesting. I mean, we, we don't think of um, how much there was an interest in mental health way back then. And the person who was in charge of this, of this uh, Temple of Asclepios, was a man named Claudius Galen. Okay? Galen of Pergamum. Galen was the greatest medical scholar prior to the 17th century A.D. He was born in Pergamum, Asia Minor, about 130 A.D. After studying, training, and practicing medicine at several major medical centers at the time, including Smyrna, Corinth, and Alexandria, Galen returned to Pergamum. And he acted as a physician at the temple of the god Asclepios. Okay? So he was, he was the most famous physician in the whole Roman Empire. And he eventually became the personal physician to the emperor, Marcus Aurelius. 
He died in 210 AD. His surviving works fill over 22 volumes. He wrote at least 500 medical books. So I mean, this guy's amazing. Um, he was dubbed Galen the Divine. Those who opposed his views were often burned at the stake. So much was he regarded. And the emblem for medicine, the caduceus, uh, this is, this is uh, the, the medical logo that we have. And that is, okay, yeah, go back to the other one. The, the next one, yeah. This is, um, this is the symbol that came from Pergamum. And that became the symbol of medicine, a snake wrapped around a pole like that. And you can see um, in, you know, in the ruins of Pergamum, you can there, just as you're entering into this lower city in the, the temple of Asclepion, you can see um, this, this symbol of this, the snake wrapped around the pole. And that became, and still is, the, the emblem for medicine. So this Pergamum then was very much a place of healing and a place uh, you know, that was famous all over the world and it and set the stage for so many things. Galen is still regarded as one of the great uh, uh, physicians of all time. It was also the site of the first, first temple of the Caesar cult erected to Rome and Augustus, 29 AD. And as we mentioned before, each citizen was required to offer incense to the emperor once a year and declare that Caesar is Lord. And of course, as we mentioned, that was um, anathema to, a, to the Christians. And so many were martyred for the faith because they would not agree to that. So Pergamum was famous for its library of 200,000 parchments. Okay? Now this is another... Um, and you can see up here, if I can get this thing going again. Um, okay, well, anyway. But there's a light. Do you see the library up there? It was one of the largest libraries in the whole Roman Empire. And, and Pergamum and Alexandria, Egypt, were vying for the top post, you know, the top slot in libraries. 200,000 volumes in that day. I mean, that's before you, those are parchments. Those are not, um, you know, those are not um, uh, books as we would have it. In fact, the word parchment comes from the word pergamum. And par par the parchment made from animal skills was invented in pergamum as a response to the embargo of papyrus from Egypt after the emperor of Ptolemy got angry with the emperor of Pergamum Eumenides, and lured or bribed a librarian in Alexandria named Aristophanes to come to Pergamum. And so there, there was, was this tension between Pergamum and Alexandria. So papyrus was made from the pith of the papyrus plants, and it's the word that we get paper from. So we get, we get uh, you know, paper, our concept of paper, we get from Pergamum, our concept of healing, we get from Pergamum. So it really had a profound influence all through the ages. But it was also a great place of pagan worship, as we saw in both Ephesus and Smyrna. And so much so that Pergamum is called the seat of Satan. So physically, um, and this is, um, as you go toward the coast, and this is up the coast a little bit, but this is in Turkish, it's called Shaitan Sofrasif, and that means Satan's seat, okay? So you go and there's this, this uh, huge, uh, huge hill and you go up on the top of that and that's Satan's seat. So that's how much um, influence, pagan influence there was. And some people believe that Satan actually dwelt physically in Pergamon. We don't know for sure. And Pergamum exceeded all other cities at that time in wickedness. All right? You have greatness in terms of, you know, the physical surroundings and so on, but it was also wicked because it was given over to pagan worship. Its pagan inhabitants lived in luxury accompanied by great vice. It probably had in it more idols than any other place in Asia. So 
when Cyrus conquered Babylon, okay? So we had Babylon was, as you, you know, when you look in scripture, Babylon is so many times regarded as, you know, the, the kind of the place of, of the, uh, the place of paganism, okay? It was in Babylon. Well, when Cyrus came in, they shifted that place of paganism to Pergamum. And then from there, it eventually went to Rome. <clears throat> so Pergamum regarded itself as the custodian and defender of the Greek way of life and the Greek worship of the gods. All right, so we had greatness in terms of all kinds of beauty and so on, but also very much a place of pagan worship and, and emperor worship as well. There's a fascinating footnote in history. In the, in the 1880s, about a, um, a German archaeologist working in the city of Pergamon removed the throne of, as we, as we looked at that temple of, of Zeus, okay? He took it to Berlin, and, and that then, you know, people question that Hitler rose out of Berlin, and so we have that pagan influence and that pagan worship and so on, moving from Pergamum then to Berlin. And we had the rise of Hitler from that place. Okay, so let's look at the commendation to the church in Pergamum. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So they got two things right. First thing is, they'd remain true to Jesus. Um, and, you know, it's difficult in, a lot of times the, the places where it's most difficult to remain true to Jesus are the places of prosperity. Isn't that right? We can do fine with, with uh, persecution and all kinds of opposition and so on, but it's usually prosperity that has us shifting away from a walk with Jesus. 1 John 4.2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge, acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and and now is already in the world. So we saw that in Pergamum. Um, but they had remained true. There were some who had gone, you know, followed Balaam and the Nicolaitans, but many of them, most of the, of the people in Pergamum had remained true to Jesus. And they had not renounced their faith in Jesus. So much so that this fellow Antipas was martyred, one of the first martyrs in the, in the province of Asia at that time. He was murdered during the reign of Nero, uh, and Nero uh, reigned from 54 to 68 AD, okay? So sometime during that time, Antipas was martyred. The word Antipas means against all. Anti, which is mean against, and pas, which means all, against all. According to a 10th century legend, Antipas was bishop of Pergamon. And he was brought before an image of Caesar and told to confess that Caesar was God. When he refused, the Roman official said, Antipas, don't you know that the whole world is against you? And Antipas replied, then Antipas is against the whole world. Isn't that incredible? Don't you know the whole world is against you? Then Antipas is against the whole world. And then he was placed inside a brass bowl heated with fire, and roasted to death, okay? So that's the kind of thing that's going on. It's the kind of paganism and the kind of spiritual atmosphere that we see in, the, in, in Pergamum. So um, there's a, and now an exhortation to the church in Pergamum. Nevertheless, beginning in verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there were two problems in Pergamum. 
And not, it wasn't the whole church, but there were some in the church who held to the teaching of Balaam. Okay, now, who's Balaam? Balaam was a prophet in Mesopotamia, which is present-day Iraq, and a Gentile. And the children of Israel were going from down in Egypt, uh, going into the Promised Land. And as they're on the road, they had to pass through Moab. Okay? And as they're passing through Moab, the, the people got scared to death in Moab and said, we got to do something. So they went to the king Balak and said, we got to do something. We can't, you know, we can't defeat these people. There were, you know, we don't know exactly. There were 601,000 men, but then, you know, we had women and children. So we probably got two or three million people going through their land. And he said, we got to do something. So they said, well, let's hire Balaam to come and curse Israel as they're passing through. So, so Balak sends, you know, sends some men down to uh, where Balaam lives and says, okay, will you come up and curse Israel for us? And Balaam says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come, but I'm going to say what God says. And so the men went back and they said, no, nah, Balaam, well, actually, the first time he refused to go with them. They went back, they came back again, and Balaam said, well, I'll go. Finally agreed to go, but he, but he said, I am only going to say what God wants me to say. Well, um, seven times Balaam refused to curse Israel. He would go and seek the Lord, and the Lord would say, okay, go, and he'd go and he'd pr pronounce a blessing over Israel. Seven times that took place, and finally Balaam got, you know, said, okay, this, is, this isn't working. <laughs> this isn't a good method. So it mentions in the New Testament, in, in this passage then, uh, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So what Balaam came up with is we are not going to defeat the Israelites through cursing them. We can't defeat them you know, militarily. We can't do it by cursing them. So he came up with a plan. He said, what, I, what you do is to bring all your good-looking girls and bring them, you know, uh, around the camp of the Israelites. And, and, uh, and so the Israelites are enticed into sexual immorality with these girls. And then in the wake of that, then, they would begin to worship idols the way that the Moab girls did. And so the doctrine of Balaam then is spiritual unchastity or marriage with the world and the world system. And that included, of course, committing sexual immorality. And the word that's used here is a word that we, from which we get pornography. So it was sexual immorality of all kinds of different means. And it means to live without sexual restraint or to commit fornication. Because when we depart from God, we tend towards sexual licentiousness. That's just life. Well, there were also in Pergamum, there were the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans misunderstood the concept of Christian li liberty, and they started to teach and taught that, you know, they, these were Christians, but they had, um, they had said, we're free in Christ, so we are free to do whatever we want. So they were free to, you know, to engage in adultery. They were free to do whatever. Uh, it didn't matter what you did because you were under the grace. And if you're under grace, you can do whatever you want to do. So their idea of freedom in Christ led them to commit numerous acts of immorality. Ignatius, who was um, martyred in Rome in 110 AD, said this. He brands them lovers of pleasure and given to slanderous speeches. He also says they affirm that unlawful unions, uh, sexual unions, are a good thing and place the highest happiness in pleasure. Okay, so what does that mean to us today then? Okay. The devil only has two ways, two approaches. The one is through intimidation, okay? Persecution, um, you know, just intimidate you not to speak up. 
The second is enticement. Okay? And enticement is actually more difficult to counter than, than intimidation or persecution. And what this reminds me of is the 1960s in, in America. Um, and there was, you know, out of the 60s, there was a, there was a whole emphasis. If you remember on the time, at the time, there was this whole emphasis on freedom. And everything was free. We're free to do whatever. And, and uh, uh, there's a couple pictures there. Uh, yeah. And out of that, that, that sense of, you know, the 60s were all about, you know, those old squares, uh, you know, the, the, the uptight people. And we're not going to be them. We're going we're gonna, to, you know, play our guitar and get together and sing Kumbaya. And we're all going to get along together. And it's good. The world, we can usher in this age of Aquarius. We can usher in this new age, you know. And uh, uh, here's some people. This are some hippies back. <laughs> Who's that, Caroline? <laughs> that's us, okay. Yeah, that's me on the, on the right-hand side there. Caroline in the middle. But, uh, so we were part of that. And, and the whole idea was that you could be free from cultural baggage. Except for one problem. Take it all with you. <laughs> You know, and it didn't take us too awful long to realize that, that uh, you know, we had the same problems that everybody else did, and that's when we came to Christ, uh, because we realized that, that um, we need, in fact, when we were in Turkey, we told our friends um, that, I'm, I'm sorry, it, this, was, this was when we were heading up the coast to, uh, to Oregon, this is southern Oregon, and when we left, we told our, some friends of ours, we said, we're going to go find the truth, and we're not stopping until we find it. We'll let you know when we, when we come back. And so we did. We found truth. But this was a whole era of permissiveness, wasn't it? Um, you know, peace and love, and, and you know, you, you, did, you could break down all that sexual stuff. That really didn't matter. It was permissiveness, and we had all the answers. We could do it. Well, and as a culture, we began to put the highest good in pleasure. Prior to that, you know, uh, a lot of the emphasis was on duty and all that kind of stuff. Now, um, it was, what was important was just maximizing pleasure. And doesn't that describe America and, you know, the 60, 70 years we've had since then? That um, pleasure comes from God, and so um, we we can just uh, do whatever we want. Well, we're Nicolaitans, we're Balaamites. Per Pergam was a difficult place to live. Today, there are parts of the country and so on where it's really difficult to live. There's a lot of pressure to conform to the ways of the world, isn't there? That's one of the things that we face as Christians. So, the solution is freedom Jesus' way. As a culture, we tried to find freedom, the way of the world, but eventually we found freedom Jesus' way. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay, so it's freedom is not found as believers in just doing what we want. I mean, in those years since, since that time, we've learned, we've learned that you just can't do whatever you want. You do whatever Jesus wants. And true freedom comes from following Jesus and allowing him to set us free. So freedom, Jesus' style, is free from the oppression of sin. Because it's sin that destroys us. So rather than, you know, sitting around in groups and, and playing the guitar and singing about freedom, we follow Jesus. Because, and only Jesus can free us from sin. Sin is our problem. Not uptightness, sin. Galatians 5.19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. 
sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's what Jesus sets us free from. And we also have freedom from cultural norms which are counter-biblical. All right? And that's what we've been doing, isn't it, since then? Um, how, how many of you here are, had been in the Jesus movement at some point? I know you guys have. And you guys were, were as well, weren't you? Come out of that kind of? No. Okay. Who came later? <laughs> okay, not the Jesus. Okay. Post-Jesus. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but what Jesus is showing us, he shows us those things in our culture which are unbiblical. And that's what sanctification is. We increasingly, um, we move from, from being cultural to being countercultural as, as Jesus' followers. And we are free to enjoy the Spirit's promptings. Galatians 5.16, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So how do we handle the sinful nature? We're led by the Spirit. We follow what Jesus wants us to do. We, uh, we obey His Spirit. We learn what it means to walk with Him. <clears throat> so we are separate from the world. And we are called to be distinctly different from the world. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. That's the broad way, the broad way of the world, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So God has called us to become separate. God has called us to be different from the world. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and so on. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between this temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then he says this, Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. So what God has called us to is, is this relationship with Jesus Christ in which we gradually say no to the desires of our, the sinful desires of our own hearts, but also we say no to the customs of this world which are anti-biblical and unbiblical. So the words of Antipas were, don't you know that the whole world is against you? And Antipas replied, then Antipas is against the whole world. That's, our, that's, that's what God has called us to be. If the world is against us, then we're against the world. Now, we're obviously, as Christians, we're to be out there having an influence in the culture. So he doesn't call us out of the culture. He calls us into the culture to make a difference. But he calls us that, that our hearts would be won by him and given over to him so that we become separate and different, totally unlike the world. The world offers money, sex, and power. Jesus offers peace, love, and joy. So how do we do that? How do we separate from the world? Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? That's Jesus. Him who overcomes, we get the presence of Jesus Christ. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So, and that new name is this process of sanctification whereby we, we get to know Jesus better. And God promises, promises us that we will receive a white stone with a new name written on it. Christ is in the process of sanctifying us, making us different. And as we walk with Jesus Christ, we become different. 
So there were two problems, sexual promiscuity and compromise with the world. And two solutions, the hidden manna of Jesus Christ and the white stone, the rebirth and the sanctification process that Christ is in the process of making us different so that we don't blend into the world so that we can overcome the world. And in that overcoming then, we become of use to the world. If we compromise with the world, we are no longer of use to the world. If we follow Jesus and become what Jesus calls us to be, then we become of use to the world. The world is looking at us, and they don't want to see us like them. Because the world says something's wrong. They know something is wrong inside. And they're looking at us, and they're asking the question, are they like, are they like Jesus? Are they different than me? Is there, do they have some sort of answer? So we draw near to Jesus and we become like Jesus. And in doing that, we become, we become valuable to the world when they see that we're not like them. We're something different. We have something different than what the world has to offer. Savior, he's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always there. He lives, he lives, as Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along my narrow way. today. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for pointing out to us that which is right and that which is wrong. And that that which is right is to follow you, to listen to your Holy Spirit, to follow the message, to listen to the messages it gives us, to follow those and not take the easy path. Lord, we know that you'll be with us always. We know this because your son told us so. So we do, we pray this in his name. Amen.